What's up, Joe? Oh, you know, just another day of technical snafus as we try to get this going. It's awesome. This is good. So you're, we're not going to be able to see you. He, uh, our boy here, Hank Azaria, is just going to see me. I don't feel comfortable with that. Well, you're better looking than I am, so he'll be happy. No, I, I don't know what the internet says. I don't know what's going on, man. I don't know. I, 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 I'm in this house. I'm in Colorado. It's a beautiful ranch, but I, I guess it hasn't been updated since dial-up. So I, I, it's just so frustrating. Actually, on Monday, I'm, there, I'm, I'm having a guy come out to sort of figure all of this shit out because it's driving me crazy. I mean, crazy. I want to kill somebody. But, you know, we got to work with what we got, I guess. Yeah. So what's it like Ugh. hearing that dial-up sound again? I don't know, man. It brings me back. That ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. AOL Messenger. Yeah. God. But last night, last night, a bear dragged away one of our trash cans. And it was crazy. And I went out this morning and I looked at his paw prints and stuff. It was pretty, it was pretty wild, actually. Right on the front stoop. For people who don't know, Oliver is in, uh, I guess, Aspen, but just right outside Aspen. And does that not scare mm-hmm. you with your kids running around uh, all over the place during all hours not of the really. day out there? No, my, uh, you know, it scares Aaron a little bit, you know, but they're bears, black bears especially, are scared of humans. You know, they don't want anything to do with us. So I'm not really that worried if they hear a human they're gonna bolt the only time you're gonna get attacked by a black bear is if you startle them or get between you know obviously mama and her cubs which can happen but if i was scared then not ever letting my kids out what kind of life would they have you know what i mean you gotta let them go but i mean that's that's the conventional wisdom on black bears but I don't know. I would be worried about finding the one black bear that isn't afraid of humans and is starving and sees one of these kids running around and can run way faster than you think they can. And then the next thing you know, we've got a tragedy out in Aspen. I know. But if we're worrying about that lone starving bear, I mean, how does that translate to your life? And you're constantly worrying about the anomaly, the outlier. How does that... You know, I mean, my kids would be totally fucked up if that's the way I did things. Every time, every time I get on a plane, I think, who's the guy or gal in the cockpit and were they first in their class? I mean, somebody had to come in last in their piloting class. And did I get that one pilot? And were they having a bad day or have they been sitting at Chili's to go for the last six hours in civilian clothing? And now they put their outfit yeah. on and they're they're sitting there and they're just not that happy. That's what goes through or my mind when we're pulling off the ground. Who knows? Right. I don't know. I don't know who that like, is. Like uh like Denzel in flight. You know what I mean? It's, like, right. Yeah. It's, it's the same yeah. thing in, in Uber. I mean, I don't I don't know who these people are. I'm not gonna do a Sebastian Maniscalco skit about it, but I who knows if they're good drivers, especially Uber X. I mean, these are people that are like getting groceries and whatever, and then I'm going to trust them with yeah. my life. I It just doesn't make sense to me. So you cannot worry. Well, you I'll up, worry for both of us. You bring up a good point, though. Like, we are a very trusting society for the most part. 
You know what I mean? We put our lives in many people's hands throughout the day. I think that's yes. a good thing, though. You know, I think we need to have faith in society. You know, otherwise, we're living in fear. We can't live in fear. It, what kind of okay, life is that? But, well, you know what? You know what? I used to be deathly afraid of flying. And then I thought once I had kids, maybe I'd get over it. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not afraid anymore, but I was very, very much afraid in my 20s. I'm not afraid now, but I, I, I am afraid of dying just in general, not because of death itself, but because I feel like I need to be here for my children. I, I worry about them. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily about me. It's about them. What, what will they do? What kind of life would they have if I was not around? And that's, that's what scares me. You know, maybe they had a boy, maybe they'd fear? have a better life. Maybe but it is about you. Maybe, maybe <laughs> their lives would somehow be improved with you uh going down. And I don't know. I think it does come and back then, to you, but it's funny. You were worried in your twenties. I was never worried until I had kids. And then the minute I had yeah. kids, I felt the same way. I, I was worried every time I felt turbulence. I can't sleep on a plane because I just don't know what's I like to be in control, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes, I do. I do. You know, I, I know that very, very well. We butt heads there, you know, because I don't care about control, really. You know? Yeah. Well, there, you, there, there's a fine line between laissez faire and lazy. You know what I'm saying? Well, where do you think the word lazy came from? Okay. You know? Well, I'm, I'm just so, saying laissez faire is like hands off. Lazy is, I just don't care and i'm i'm just it'll work out or it won't yeah but that's your perception that's your that's your perception of me based on your craziness based on your neuroses you know what i mean you think that no it is it is it's it's i do have a laissez-faire attitude for sure that that makes me stress-free through life and i'll probably live long you know What's there to stress uh-huh. about? You won't live but longer because you you're going to get eaten by a bear. <laughs> I'm not going to get eaten by a bear. Let, let, I want to I hear about the game, though. You, you had your first game. I didn't get to watch it, and I, I apologize. Um, but how was it? It's Over quite there. all right. It was, it was good. I was sitting in a – for those who don't know what we're talking about, I did my first major league game this year, this past Saturday, and I was sitting in a studio in – Denver, John Smoltz, who's my on-air partner, who typically is three feet or even six feet with social distancing away from me, was in New Jersey. Our producer and director were in L.A., and the game was being played in Washington, D.C. So we had one, two, three, four points of uh, entry for this thing, and it came off really well. We had a genius audio person who Mm. was in the truck or back in LA. I'm not sure where the person was. I mentioned him a couple times on the air on Saturday because our audio, and again, this has nothing to do with me, our audio, it sounded like a full house and it was realistic, good crowd noise. Like the Yankee pitcher in Washington threw over to first and the crowd mildly booed. And that's what you would hear at a game and it was just a subtle thing. And, and it was, it was just brilliant. And it was like, it was like Fred on uh, Stern, like dropping in these perfect, uh, these perfect sound bites at the right time that make you laugh in and around the conversation. This guy 
did and and I'm going to get his name before we uh, before we say goodbye because I just want to say it again because it was just so it made yeah. us all sound so much better. But it was weird though, Oliver, to do a game not being able to see the defense because I'm I'm watching it just like you are at home and just like we talked about. I can see a ball if it's hit hard, but I don't know if it's hit at somebody to the left or right of somebody. I don't know if it's in the gap. I don't know if the outfielders are playing over there. So I have to wait a bit like a tick just to make Mm -hmm. sure that the ball that I think is hit in the gap is actually hitting the gap and nobody's standing there to catch it. So did you ever try to anticipate anything you did? Did you? Yeah. I was about to ask, did you or no? Uh, I got caught a couple of times, like on a ball, the judge hit and he just got under it. But when you see it from center field and if you're at home, you're watching it like, oh my God, he crushed that. It's Aaron judge. I mean, of course that's going out and it was a medium depth fly ball. So you just, you know, you have to just kind of adjust as the ball's traveling through the air. But I, man, to be able to drive there, do the game, get in my car and drive back to where we're staying was, uh, instead of racing yeah. to the airport was uh <laughs> that was definitely a silver lining to the experience let me ask you a question what did you wear i wore a regular thing because i i, I wore a coat tie nice shirt that you i did. had to buy in aspen because i didn't bring any of that and i wore khakis and regular shoes because we were on camera they shot us at the beginning and at the end in the studio with a fox baseball banner backdrop and it looked Oh, it looked normal. I didn't know that. Okay. So they put Smoltz wow. next to me side by side. We did our little on camera, me from Denver, him from <laughs> wow. Jersey, and it seemed like we were right there next to each other. It was crazy. And and how is your makeup? I didn't have any. Well, I had a little bit of powdering done by uh, a 64-year-old man uh, in the mm-hmm. studio. Hey, Hank Azaria is here. Well, Speaking hello. of makeup. Hey, Hey, this is me all made up. This is uh, it's amazing. The, the I'm also in drag. To... I'm in full drag. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking. We were just talking, Hank, about me doing my first game Saturday as I was in Denver and Smoltz was in Jersey and the game was in D.C. And it was pretty crazy to, to do a game just off TV. Yeah. Uh, and and kind of be beholden to what you see at home instead of what I see just looking down on the field. So uh, that's well, also, we had also you on, the drops, the, creating the sounds, the sounds of the game too. I mean, yeah, that, that, really that was a cool thing. Hank. We had, everything. we had an audio guy that was putting in just subtle, really smart crowd noise on a throw to first, like a, a Yankee pitcher threw to first and the games in DC and the DC crowd booed just mildly. And yet nobody's in the stadium. I was like, that's so was next it in level. Real time, real time. Like it happened. Yeah. It was. It was like he anticipated it. It, I, it was unbelievable. Anyway, wow. yeah. so you have to be and, uh, a director of sound. Yes. Yeah, you definitely. literally need like a foley artist uh, who is actually yes. applying the sound. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been uh, noticing he, that in the Mets broadcasts. Yeah, they're do, they're doing the same thing, and sometimes they do it better than others, and they're still getting the hang of it. Yeah, I well, what I said going in was I don't want us as a network to be reliant on the person in the stadium doing the sound because they don't really care what it sounds like on TV. So let's kind of layer in another uh, another person to really make it better. 
uh, and more on point with what you see on TV. And it's been good. I, you're a diehard Hank Metz fan. I guess that comes from being born in Queens. But uh, what in, other in so- possible reason could there be? Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, that's fair. But you and I are friends because you were kind enough to allow me to uh, do my hack acting on Brockmire, which I know enough about you to know that that had to be one of the most near and dear to your heart of, of all the billions of things you've done in your career. I, I can't imagine you having any more satisfaction than being Jim Brockmire and getting four seasons out of that character. No, uh, that is the most gratifying thing. It, uh, and I will not permit you to call that hack acting, though, Joe. You were truly no, great. I saw it. Uh, it was good. Right, Oliver, right? First of all, hi, Oliver. Yes. Uh, I'm not actually hey, seeing you right now, but I'm, I know. a long time. I'm, I'm How in you doing? Colorado. I'm in Colorado, and, and the, you know, the internet is shit where I'm at, so I have to just go voice. But I, I look better than I did the last time you saw me. So I know you look pretty good. I saw you last time. I, you know, <laughs> I, I would, I would love on my best day to look as good as you on your worst day, but that's a whole oh, other God. story. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need, I don't need that. Don't pump him up. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, no, it was fun. And watching you do your thing, watching you act the first season when you gave that speech uh, for, you know, whoever was supposedly in the audience, uh, and, and you nailing the, the dialogue over and over and over again. I just sat there in awe watching you just, it was like Nicholson and a few good men to me. Uh, I, so just if you can, because I, I'm not going to assume anybody listening or everybody listening to this podcast knows this highly successful show you did, but Brock Meyer is, uh, a, a baseball announcer that sounds exactly like Oliver sounds when he tries to imitate me. If a guy talks like this, and uh, you turned it into from a from a funnier die five minute to four seasons. So, uh, man, I I cut you off, but you were talking about how gratifying that was. Yeah, you know, this is the Jim Brockmeyer voice. I call it. Uh... Bob Costas accurately identified how I really think of it. The generic baseball announcer voice of the 1970s. For some reason, <laughs> this is who gave it to you. I mean, apart from see, guys like your dad, Joe Bob, were unique. They were individuals. And guys like Vince Scully, they did not sound like everybody else. But a lot of guys sounded like this. And to me, a lot of guys, we still get it, God willing, when we get sports back. If you tune into your average NCAA Saturday afternoon game, regional game, you get this guy. You get this guy a lot. You know, it's Northwestern facing off against Texas Tech. And um, I got as a as a mimic, I got fascinated with that voice as a teenager, especially like, why is this the voice? Because I was a big sports fan. Anything that came through the TV, I was raised by the television. So anything that came through the TV, I was staring at whether it was sports or anything else. But that voice really jumped out at me. And it was also the voice that, like, Soldier the Ginsu, the Ginsu Knife, or Popeil's Pocket Fisherman. It was like, what's with this? Why is this the vanilla announcer voice? And so wait, uh, let me ask I, you a question then, Hank. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So why do you think? I mean, obviously, there's something there. Do you think it was soothing? Uh, you know, it was easy listening. There has to be a reason behind why that voice is the prominent voice of sports. 
That's a good question, Oliver. I never really asked. I never went that deep. I think, yes, I think there's a, it's a pleasant sounding thing. It's like innocuous. I have a feeling it was guys imitating other guys, like everything else, right? There, there probably was an original guy or two who sounded great that way. And that was their natural voice. And then other people started emulating it till it just became like industry standard or something. I think it's a bad Scully. It's like a, it's a bad, and, and I know Scully's different and, and that's why, I mean, he's so, you talk about soothing. There is no voice like Vin Scully. Uh, you want him to read you good night moon every night, but it, it's, he is the, the rhythm. There's a rhythm to it. And when I talk to people getting involved in broadcasting, I'm like, you gotta be louder. It is kind of part acting because nobody talks Hey, welcome back to the ballpark. And you got, you'd be so goddamn loud. I'll take a uh, skinny vanilla latte. If you don't mind there, uh, Karen, is it? I guess we can't use the name Karen anymore. If you just put my name on it, it's Joe. I, nobody talks like that. You'd be the loneliest man alive. But for you, Hank, to do the voice. Yeah, it's one thing to do it when you're doing play-by-play or fake play-by-play in a show. But to carry the voice on through normal conversation with your girlfriend and your daughter. And I mean, it just would, that's what made it so funny to me. Well, that was, yeah. I mean, you're right. Like actors have theater voices. Like I don't sound the same talking to you as I would on stage on Broadway where you gotta be, you gotta project it and be loud. So it's sort of a similar thing you're talking about, but then there's this, but that was a big conscious choice. We wondered early on when we were creating the character, should he consciously put that on and take it off? Like, does he have a persona? And then I always thought it was funnier though. Like you just said, if not only does he talk like this, you know, when he's calling the bottom of the fourth, but when he's dirty talking in bed, when he's having an argument <laughs> with his girlfriend, when he's, <laughs> you know, when he's wasted on what, when he's hopped up on goofballs, whatever. It is. <laughs> it's just so great. I, I just, everybody in my industry just adores that show. Therefore, they adore you. Uh, but I just thank you for letting me be a part of it because I got to tell you, man, I, I know to have a show on IFC, you don't know if it's going to catch on. I personally get more comments about being on Brockmire than I do after I do a Super Bowl or if I do after I do a World Series. I will get the most random you know, Uber drivers and people on the corner of the street. Oh my God, I saw you in Brockmire. That was unbelievable. You, you hit a note with people because everybody hears that voice evidently and, and, and just latched onto this character. Well, that's the thing I found. Thank you, Joe. And you're downplaying your, you were a huge part of it. I mean, you were kind enough to you and Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen did the short for funny or die. What is it like 10, 11 years ago now? Yeah. I think it was like 2010. Yes. Nine, somewhere in there. Yes. Uh, and you guys are also good. good. Math, Rich is Joe. a good, good you, math. Thanks. Is Thanks, good math. Baby. Rich Eisen's a good buddy of mine. Uh, and I met you, I think, doing that. And uh, then you were so good. We were like, well, we knew we wanted to have somebody like you in the show. And we're like, well, let's ask if Joe will do it. We didn't think you would, but we were like, let's ask Joe. Then you were kind enough to do it. But then we we're like, well, geez. We've kind of written sort of a big part. Can Joe Buck act? We don't really know. We know he did well that day on the, uh, on the short, but so we purposely wrote, wrote it. I think you know this so that it could be cuttable in case you sucked. Like, uh, right. like no, uh, yeah, I, I, I got I mean, that hint. 
<laughs> well, you know, you don't know. Like, I mean, it would be like putting me in an announcer booth. You don't know that I can do it. I mean, I might. Yeah, I do. You know, no, I do know you can do it. You should do it. I actually can't do it because I can't follow. I can do it if you script it for me, but I can't follow the game in real time. You could get the hang of it. You, you. It you would take me like a year of study. Maybe that. But I, but, I were, we're, we're interrupting you, complimenting me. But so the point ahead. is, I, exactly. The point is, so we wrote it, and then we were almost like, you know, maybe we should have just written this, hire an actor and written it for like a Joe Buck type, you know, called him Bo Luck, and and had him in there, and it'd be obviously <laughs> Joe Buck, but. Uh, <laughs> But then literally after take one, I don't know if you noticed this, but I turned to Joel Church Cooper and our director, Tim Kirkby at the time. And I, my mouth was open. I was like, did you guys see that? Did you see that? Did you see Joe Buck there? We're all like, oh my God. And then we started oh. throwing more stuff at you. And, and it was it, real, honestly, Joe, it was, oh, thank you. you know, I, yeah, I think, you know, you. if you wanted to be an actor, you could, I mean, you actually, I, you know, I know life's working out well for you doing what you're doing, but. <laughs> I would not say that if I if it wasn't true. Yeah, thank I you. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. It was it was it was it was very very good. Like I was Joe sent me clips and I'm waiting to sort of look at Joe and be like, "All right, yeah, that's pretty good." But it was very real and spot on. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, I I was just playing myself like this asshole version of all I was doing was perpetuating what's out there <laughs> that I'm some <laughs> stiff asshole that uh, just, I, I'm basically putting Hank down. I, he thinks I took a shit in his bed, and I'm basically putting Hank down because uh, I took off in my career, and I'm his nemesis and his rival because, you know, for various reasons, not just, you know, a lack of overall talent, uh, he kind of dive-bombed his own career. Anyway, that's the show, Brockmeyer. I highly recommend it. That's not the reason why we wanted to have you on. I, I came across, Hank, your fatherhood, Doc. Oh, yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I was blown away. That is such a good idea. And what Oliver and I have found through this podcast, you know, we just talked to Vetter or we talked to Barkley or we talked to, you know, whomever, David Spade, different people along the way. This through line of fatherhood and what they got from their dad and what they wish they hadn't gotten from their dad with regard to their own parenting skills. I, I think it's really untapped. And I started getting into your documentary and I was like, God, this is so good and so needed and so real and raw. Uh, I, I'd love to see that come back around somehow. How, how can we do that? That's a good idea. You know, we've been thinking about that. We tried a little bit a while ago. It might be time to try again because it'd be obviously we did that when Hal was like born to when he was a toddler. That's my son, Hal. He's now just mm -hmm. turned 11. Be interesting to sort of revisit it 10 years later and get into whatever the issues are, you know, for a tween now, which I know you've, you've lived. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm just getting into it now. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I, listen, it came, that was born out of, no pun intended, Katie and I being completely uh, terrified to be parents because of what we did and didn't get from our parents. And we felt very ill-equipped and, and not qualified. And we're to the point of not even being sure we wanted to do it, meaning be parents. We had it thrust upon us. It just kind of happened like, like, like most things in life, right? God laughs while no pun, plans. no pun intended, no pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so there we were having a kid and then we, we just decided to research it. You know, we just asked a lot yeah. of people. 
If I knew you then, Joe, I would have dragged you into it. I would have said, you know. Well, I mean, I think everybody has a unique take on it. And I look back on my childhood and I thought everything was perfect. And as you get older, you realize it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty damn great. But that's not the case for most. And that's why Oliver and I do this, because Oliver's experience as a boy was a was polar opposite of what I experienced as a boy. Mm. You know, he but 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 what I love. But what I love, but what I love about, you know, your situation, Hank, is it's just a different perspective. You know what I mean? Most, I'm going to say most people, but a lot of people sort of, you know, their dream of fatherhood or it's expected to, you're expected to be a dad. You know, this isn't something that you were necessarily excited about through your life. It just happened, you know? Um, So... First of all, I'd love to get into why, because you sort of touched on it with you and your girl did not have great sort of, you know, fathers or parents, I guess. And it wasn't didn't necessarily work out the way that it should have or seemed to, you know, but I had a similar situation. I just went the other other way with it. You know, when my dad sort of bailed and Kurt came into my life, which was a godsend. But I wanted to be a father to try to break the cycle because his dad left him. My dad left me, you know. So at what point were you sort of accepting of this? The moment she got pregnant, we're like, oh, shit, here we go. Well, yeah, that'll that'll make you accept it in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we were, you know. The, the, the backstory to that is, you, you know, look, I, I know most people just want to have kids. Most people I know. Some people know they don't. Katie and I both were truly on the fence, which was kind of harder to deal with because at that point she was 37. Her biological clock was kind of ticking. And for us, it was less about do we get married and more about, well, do we have a kid? I don't know. Do you want to? I don't know. Do you? And I don't know that I don't, I don't know that I do. So we started shooting this documentary, not because we knew we were gonna be parents, but because we just weren't sure. So I, I started out, I was interviewing people. What's such a big, why, did, why do you like it? What's good about it? What, you know, did you always wanna be a mom or dad? And I was mostly talking to dads. And, and then was it what you were expecting? I was afraid of things like, what if I don't like my kid and he doesn't like me, which is sort of an insight into what my childhood was like. And, um, uh, and, and so as we're asking these questions and shooting it, you know, filming it, uh, my dog of 16 years, my beloved dog, Annie was real sick and we had to put her down. And the day we were putting her down, Kate gets up, my, my now wife, then girlfriend gets up and throws up. I'm like, you're taking this hard. She's like, no, 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 no. It's not that. I'm like, what is it? I got the, literally the dogs on my lap, like we're waiting for the vet to come put her down. And uh, I'm like, to me, you seem pregnant or something. And she looks at me like, no. Well. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean? She's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm late. I said, well, are you pregnant? She's like, I don't know. Like, we'll take a test. Well, I have one. Oh, you're concerned enough that you bought a test? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, go take it. So literally, this is the conversation. I'm on the phone with my best friend. She's going, wait, these tests take fast. I don't know if you know this. It's like a minute. She came back like two minutes later, crying, nodding like that, meaning I'm pregnant. And I'd say to my buddy, Larry, Larry, she's pregnant. And he goes, Hank, 
hang up the phone and go hug her. And I swear to you, if he didn't say that, I'd still be probably sitting there on that phone with my dying dog in my lap who I never put down, just the bones of my dog in my lap at this point. (laughs) So we kind of went, then the documentary changed into, well, now we're having a kid. What the hell do we do? We were in a panic, an absolute panic. And uh, yeah, you know, look, at this point, I mean, these tend to get deep, these conversations, which I'm happy to do. Yeah, I was already really aware in therapy and in recovery. And I'm a guy who's, I I was sober at that point two years, I think two years, two, three years. So I had realized a lot about my own childhood that had led me down paths of a lot of success and a lot of fun, but also a lot of uh, not good self-care and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and alcoholism and, and uh, um, codependency and a lot of things that led to a lot of suffering that I at least knew enough about that I was like, wow, I certainly don't want to pass that along. Don't want to do that to a little one. And mm-hmm. even if I don't pass it along, I don't know what, I don't, I don't have any, I don't know how to give the opposite. I don't know how to nurture or make a nice situation, which is why I did that doc. I was like, I got to go learn. I literally need to go. And I did. That's what Kitty and I both did. We like went to classes and talked to people and researched it. So that was that journey. What was your first what was your first reaction, you know, when she said she was pregnant? Was it shock or fear or I mean, where were what what was that? Do you remember? Yeah, it's a good question. It was actual joy, which was amazing to me because, you know, you don't know, and right? We all know, right? You don't know how you're going to react to that moment until it happens. And I had um, had two pregnancy scares with, with women before then. They both, uh, they both, one turned out to be not pregnant and the other one uh, quickly didn't carry, like it didn't last for more than a couple of weeks. But both of those, when I was a much younger person, scared me bad. They were, did not hit me as good news at all. They frightened me. And um, so to have this kind of instant joy reaction, when Katie told me she was pregnant, I figured it was a pretty good sign. Yeah, I mean, that's, that to and me I is did. a sign that, that to me is a sign that you're with the right girl. And that, yeah, exactly. you know, you were yeah, ready. That's what I was going to say. That, that, you were, that you were ready. And, you know, I, I've as you, you know, you're 11 years into this great joy that is your son, Hal. And I wonder, you know, as you look back on the questions you were asking back then, and you're asking simple questions because you just want the widest possible answer to occur. I understand that. But when you say, what do you love about it? Or or why are you so excited to be a dad? And now here you are 11 years into it. If, if some other documentarian came along and asked you now, Hank, what's so great about being a dad? What would your answer be? Um, it would be, well, look, this is a cliche answer, but it's discovering the truth of this cliche. And it's just, it's just the first level of my answer. It is a love like no other. You know, the way my friend puts it in LA, a poker buddy of mine puts it. Remember Ajay uh, Oliver? Of course, yeah. Okay, so this is where Oliver, Ajay puts it. He goes, look, my, my children, they're my flesh and blood, okay? My wife, that's somebody I met in a bar, all right? So, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's sort of a different level 
of love and they kind of look like you and love you and worship you and hang on your, you know, I know that stops uh, past the tween years, but, um, and to me, as somebody who from a fraught background and was so worried about getting it right, it gave me an opportunity to get it right, which was very, very healing. You know, like I, I, he looks like an 11 year old me. I, I literally have flashbacks to my own childhood and like, oh, this is what I wish my dad would have done. And mm. A, I get the double joy of like, here's what I'm doing for him. And, and I kind of heal my own little hurt 11 year old at the same uh, time, if you will. <laughs> Uh, Man, and, you and I are so similar. It's crazy. I, I even just the what you're the words that you're saying are the words that I have spoken to myself. Anyway, sorry, go on. It's it's yeah. Crazy. I mean, I think that's what it's all about, and you know, and that can be a trap too. Like just doing the opposite of what your parents did is is like a knee jerk trap. It it it, it requires um, a lot of creativity. Look, I love being creative. I'm an actor and a producer. What better role, what better production is there to put your heart and soul into? Like Brockmeyer is my baby, but, you know, Hal's my baby. And, you know, I was raised with a dad, a lovely guy, an amazing guy. But work was his capital B baby. I was his small B baby. It was the opposite with mm. him. And that's a lot what I'm trying to heal. Like, that's what had my father's attention was. He was that Mad Men era. He wasn't an advertising guy. He was in the garment business, but he was that era of, you know, workaholic, I'm out there doing it, guys. And, uh, you know, my kind of my whole life story was about trying to get his attention and, and his approval and love and validation and to be able to, like, be there for my son on a day-in, day-out basis uh, is tremendously healing, I, I think, good for him and healing for me. I think that's the. So your dad did your dad show you affection at all, or or was he just pretty much just working all the time? Um, he did, he was a love a lovely loving guy. He just was very tired and busy, you know, Oliver. Like mm. I can remember, like here's a memory I have of my dad. You know, he'd be, I'd either go to work with him sometimes, and I'd be playing with my toys on the floor. I'm like, you know, four, five. And I just would be where he was. I just want to be where he was, you know? And I remember like, and on the weekends, he was just exhausted. Like he worked a lot of weekends, Saturdays, and he'd also be just exhausted. And I remember I'd spend days, like I'd be playing with my Tinker Toys. Remember Tinker Toys? Remember those? Yeah. Anyway, I'd be playing with those. I don't have that memory. And he'd be in a room and he'd get up and just leave. Wouldn't say where he just wouldn't like, you know, he'd get up and leave. And I'd grab my toys up follow and put him down in the room he was in play more and you know this is sort of a sad memory but i remember thinking i wonder if dad likes me i don't really know and he would get up and kind of grab my head sometimes he just kind of like give me a, my head squeeze and i'd live on that head squeeze for like two months <laughs> like oh mm -hmm. dad likes me he touched my head so it was kind of that story. It wasn't like abuse, you know, or neglect, mm -hmm. but it was definitely a distance that uh, on a very deep level, I, I, uh, I felt, you know. And it was the same with your siblings as well? Well, I had two sisters who were 10 and 12 years older 
uh, than I am. So oh, they wow. were teenagers okay. by the time. So yeah, he was pretty, he was not a rally for them too. You know, he would even say it out loud. He, this is the way he'd put it. Uh, child, you know, parenting's only been a verb for about 15 years. <laughs> uh, he would say, yeah, tri- uh, my dad would say, child rearing is uh, the woman's province. That's the way he put it. It's the province of the woman. Mm. And that was mm. sort of the policy. And uh, I-, I would feel my dad parenting my sisters when he would, uh, something would go wrong and he'd come in screaming. <laughs> right. You know, like he'd lose it. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm like five listening to that. And I'm like, I just unraveled this recently as I'm doing this, uh, introspective work I do to try to be a better person and parent and stay sober and stuff. And I realized I got from, a, I got very scared of my dad very early on. Like I, the most content, I would hear that and go, don't run afoul of that guy. You know what I mean? And uh, so I kind of took it like, I'll take the every two month head squeezes rather than the, uh, you know, the full, the full blown loss of temper. Was yeah. Me. And that's what I did. I sort of stayed out of the way. Yeah. We lost you there, Joe. I know it's my, uh, my iPad overheated. I was outside because my <laughs> now two year old <laughs> twins are running roughshod inside this Airbnb. So, yeah, I've got these two-year-old twins, and, and that was actually going to be a question that I was going to go to, and I, I don't know where you guys just went, but being, being an older dad, um, like I'm, I've even got you surpassed with, with yeah. my age. I've been through it, 24, 21, and now two and two, and I'm 51. Um, you look a hell of a lot younger than I do, so good for you. you I, I got my first... Uh, wow. Out with the grandkids on a walk, uh, the oh, other day, which I just wanted to turn around <laughs> and Wait just, that happened. In, I didn't tell you that Oliver, that happened in Tahoe. I was like, you motherfucker. But my dad used to get that all the time too, with me. I'm, I'm sure you don't. It, it's kind of, it, it still works with you cause you look so young, but, uh, does the, do you start doing the math like I do and you start Going well. Let's see. I'm in my mid fifties. He's uh, a tween. So when he's, you know, X age, I'll be X age because that's all I do. I, I think I do that once a day about my boys. Like, am I going to be around long enough to see them really, you know, have families of their own or whatever it might be? Do you do any? Do you let your mind go there at all? Yeah, I'm highly aware of all those. I'll be 64 when he goes off to college. All I'm highly aware of all that stuff. And listen, it makes you feel any better. Like my wife, Katie is seven years younger than me, but she looks younger than that. And, uh, the last we were in Key Biscayne, like, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, going to the gym every day. And so Katie comes in and the gym attendant says, uh, Oh, and I do, I don't know if you do this when you work out, Joe, but I have days I call nope days where I just, you get on the treadmill, take two steps. I go, nope, don't have it today. And <laughs> oh my God. Yes. All off, the time. off I go. And uh, so I had one of those. At and least he was you get making... to the treadmill though. You know, yeah. I, at least you get there. Up. Yeah. No, I, I, I usually, nope usually succeed, but no, some days it's like, nope. And uh, so, uh, <laughs> so the guy was making fun of me the next day, Katie's in there and the guy goes, Oh, you should have seen your dad yesterday. Oh, (laughs) she goes, what? He goes, your dad, your dad. He took like two steps on the chair. I was like, do you think that this is my daughter? Is that what's happening here? And the guy goes, looks at me and goes, no, 
No, like, that's all right. You did. That's all right. Yeah, you did. By the way, it's Key Biscayne. Like, like that's the craziest combination he's ever seen. I I mean, come on. Jesus, he's seen, you know, whatever (laughs) guest models, uh, not to be named, wheeling around old people uh, into dinner, just waiting for somebody to die. Hank, was your dad a, a Mets fan? No, my dad couldn't care less about my cat. My dad worked. My dad loved the oh, garment okay. industry. That was that was the That's that it. was it. That was the corridor he operated in. I'm and, trying to uh, find something that he gave you that you know what I mean. Like <laughs> he taught me. He, he loved gave to you bowl. the Mets. He loved to bowl. He taught me how to bowl cards. And what about cards? Not, not poker. So he, yes, he he did. He, he was a big blackjack guy. He didn't like speeding sports bet or anything like that. But but really, you know, he uh, he was he loved my son. You ever have this thing where like uh, you're like, where was this guy when I was that age? You know, it's right, like, right. But you know, he's retired. Then he had a lot of time, and he was a good guy. It just wasn't. It was that generate. It was generational, really, yeah. more than anything else. You know, it's funny you say that one time we, we dropped uh, my daughter, Natalie, off uh, at my parents' house and we were gone for the middle part of the day. And I came back and my dad, who at the time was probably 71, uh, Natalie was walking around in the living room and my dad was on the floor. And I ran over there like he had a stroke or something, but he was down there playing with her dolls with her. And I was like... First of all, I thought you were dead. Secondly, the <laughs> fact that you're on the floor right now, I don't think my dad touched me till I was six, let alone like on the floor playing <laughs> dolls with me. So, you know, that's just the way. It, yeah, it's it's different. It's got to be for the grandparent. Well, it is. But also, you know, it's funny you say that because I, th- I thought of you in relation to my dad, because I think that my dad you did, you went into the family business, right? You connected yes. with your dad big time, uh, obviously, uh, over what he did. Um, I think that if I, if I were interested in the garment business, which my father would have loved if I was, I think I probably would have had a connection with him that I couldn't attain in any other way. Yeah, but I think, Hank, to be fair to you, I really think that it it starts the other way. Like I, I, I fell in love with broadcasting because my dad bothered to take me down to the ballpark every day. My dad bothered and wanted me with him because he was an older dad. By that point, he had had six other kids. He took me on road trips. He had me around the team. He let me bat boy. He let me be around the broadcast booth. So I fell in love with it because I saw how much he loved it. Right. But, but we had a great relationship. I, I think that's what has to happen first. The relationship part has to happen first for the most part and then you want to go into what they do as opposed to you you have you know not you have discord at home i think the last thing then you want to do this is generalities but i is is then go into doing what what he did right does that I think make sense yeah i think you're right that, that you've I, I owe you some i have some money for a therapy session joe buck you're right i think you're right i, I had not looked at it that way I, I know he brought me in a couple of times. I have like dim memories of him sort of showing me the robes. And, and I'm sure I was highly disinterested, much more concerned with, you know, 
Bugs Bunny and the Mets and the Partridge family or whatever I was uh, interested in. Um, but uh, the other thing is, talk about playing on the floor. I remember about 20 years ago, friends of mine, they had a, a little girl, little little one-year-old, and uh, they were playing with her on the floor, like you just described your dad was. And I had this crazy reaction, uh, this like uncomfortable, like anger reaction. Like I got so uncomfortable. I had to like go like, like kind of go splash water on your face in the bathroom, kind of uncomfortable. And uh, I was like, what the F was that? And I, I talked about it with my shrink at the time. I said, I don't even know, what was that? And it turns out I had no, I, I had no memory of my parents ever playing with me like that. Like it, it just kind of flipped something in me. Like, wow. It just hit me like I never got, I never, that never happened in my memory. What I just watched mm. happening on the floor in front of me. So that's so like funny that you stuff. say that. It's so funny you say that because I, I think that a lot when I'm putting my kids to sleep and I'm cuddling with them and I'm in their beds and holding them and I'm in there for 30 minutes just loving on them. And sometimes I'll lay there and think, man, they're so lucky. They're so lucky because I I never really had that, you know. Right. I never yeah. got. I never had yeah. that. It's, it's, I mean, it's I have a couple of jokes about it. Not jokes, but it's like. And you ask, like, what do I? What's one of the things I love about it? First of all, I I I I, I say to Katie all the time. I really wish that Kate, I wish that I was raising me. I get jealous of my own son sometimes. Like you just sound like I, <laughs> exactly. I wish Katie and I raised me. Um, <laughs> And look, that generation, look, they were the great generation, okay? They, they won World War II. Like, you know, my dad literally was over in the South Pacific. I don't think we could have done that. You know, we're, we're a generation mm -hmm. of softies. But, you know, yeah. so th th they did that. We might be better parents in our generation. Although, you know, I, I don't know if you got this episode in, in my father documentary. There's a thing called benign neglect, uh, where some of that was kind of good, right? Like we were left to our own devices a lot mm -hmm. and we learned independence at an early age. You know, we learned mm -hmm. to like kind of trust our own instincts, advocate for ourselves before that was a term, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, a, a lot of our generation goes too much the other way where we're, we're taking, taking care of everything and, you know, participation trophies and, and, and everything is sort of curated um, but, uh, the other thing I think that's great about being, you know, I still don't, one of the things that scared me about being a dad was I don't particularly like children, uh, Joe and Oliver. I don't know you guys, <laughs> I am not, I'm not kid guy. Like, Oh, wonderful. Kids will be there. Delightful. I, I don't like that. Um, uh, that annoys me. Uh, my old cranky, still, my wife still does. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I love my, there's like, I feel about, I said this in the doc, I feel about kids the way I feel about people. Like most of them are annoying. And every once in a while I run into someone I think is cool and I like, you know, and mm -hmm. children are no different. And um, uh, my son's, you know, he has a couple of friends. I think that kid's cool. But most of them are like, oh mm -hmm. God, I literally can't wait till this kid's out of my house. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh that's great what's your patience level that's i'm so saying cool. this question because my wife is uh 
in the other room. What's your patience level at uh, in your mid fifties uh, being a dad? And how was it when Hal was a wee bit younger, like uh, diaper time and all that? Was your were you all in all the time, or did you have your? Uh, I mean, everybody has their good moments and bad, but did you find yourself with uh, an inordinate amount of patience or a uh, lack thereof? Um. It goes through phase. I, I tried to be all in all the time. I, I, at different phases, I, I was more successful than others. And my patience level, you know how it is. Some things you're like, I don't mind when he does that. And your wife's like, I can't stand that. And other things you're like, I can't even tolerate a second of that. And she's like, what? It's no big deal. And thank God right. you, you like you tag team it. Um, if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that. Uh, Kevin Bacon, he did my documentary. He said some a really cool thing that I've hung on to, which is... It, it's phases. So it's, and it's going to change. This too shall pass. Right. So if you're loving the phase your kid is in, it's going to, it's going to change in six months. And if you're hating the phases that they're in, that's going to change too. Um, my patience level is, is a little better as he gets older. I think most dads report that, right. The more you can relate to them, the more you can throw a ball with them, the more you can, you know, watch a show with them, the more you can chat uh, and it's, it's less as yeah, a living doll you're taking I think care that, of. That Kevin Bacon thing, um, which I which I watched and heard, is I think that is the a a just a great kernel. That is the, that is the that is the pinnacle of parenting, I think, because that will allow you to become more patient, to have a little bit more compassion, to sort of settle in a little easier to being a parent. Everything fucking changes all the time. And I don't think it ever stops. You know what I mean? And when you understand that, it gets a little less stressful. Um, and that's what I say to new parents all the time, too. Because you think that your kid is stuck. You're like, oh, my God, this yeah. is who my child is. This is horrendous. I, can I give it back? I mean, this is horrible. But then it changes. You know, it's always shifting. And that, that eases, uh, it eases you up a little bit. It does. And Michael Thompson, who's a great developmental psychiatrist, we also interviewed, who specializes in boys. You know, he actually talked to Katie and I, and we were a little fraught with that exact issue. We were a little worried about, are we doing this right? Uh, you know, he's displaying signs of, uh, you know, this or that, that we were like cutting to him being 25, you know, and a drug addict someday because we messed up the birthday party this afternoon. Right. And, uh, He's like, you know, easy, <laughs> easy. No one incident is the fun. No one day is anything. You know, it's it's an overall mm. effort. And, you know, you make adjustments as you go as needed. But the biggest thing is you got to enjoy your child is what he said, you know, and mm. it, that energy of trying to get it right. That's its own mistake. Yeah. It's like they'll pick God. up on that, you know, it's, it's like this perfectionistic craziness you're going through with them. Yeah, well, I I always say it's it's not about it's not about you know if if you fuck up your kid you're gonna fuck up your kids it's just about to what degree you fuck up your kids you know I mean we're all we're trying to do the best that we can but there is no such thing as perfection we're screwing them up in one little way or another but yeah. as long as you're loving them and trying your hardest and doing the best that you can that's all you can really ask for. Well, there's that. And there's also, you know, there's two things we say in program in the recovery program. 
two, two cute slogans. Well, one slogan is bad day doesn't mean bad life, meaning, all right, you know, maybe today wasn't the greatest either on their part or your part, but it can be repaired, right? Uh, the other thing is the concept of a 10th step in the program, which is basically just, you know, when you're wrong, promptly admitting it. And, you know, we try to get things right, as you just said, as parents, but first of all, we're going to have a blind spot or two, or we're not even seeing how we're screwing up. But he, but the stuff we do, like one of the main things that I noticed about my childhood was anything my parents did or didn't do, I can forgive them for. I know they were doing their best. I know they love me. It was more the never admitting they were wrong or repairing it or acknowledging that that was kind of brutal that really stayed with me. So mm. the 10th step in the program is just repair. Just sorry, that happened. And that feels really good to me when I, you know, if I'm, if I, if I do lose my patience or I'm a little unfair with my son or a little, you know, prickly, I'd say, Hey, that's on daddy. I lost my patience there. You were just doing you, mm. you know, and, and that's a better lesson than, than I make mistakes. I'm human. I can repair them is a better lesson than, lesson than I'm perfect all the time. Hey, we've got two minutes left with you because you've got a hard out, ironically enough, uh, because you're going to go to Hal's game. Um, yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying, and I think I, I really want to say this to you uh, of all of our guests. I think what the secret to my relationship with my dad was he could really make me laugh and I could really make him laugh. I, he was a tough audience. And, and I was one of the few people, even when I did imitations of people that were very close to him, I could crack him up. And that was, so laughter was always the, the real secret sauce to what we had going on. And I think about you, one of the funniest people walking the planet, and the ability to do voices and the ability to mimic. And, you know, I, I would always, with my girls, apply voices to people we would see from a distance. <laughs> I, I, this guy talks, you know, hey, 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 you know, whatever. <laughs> you, you, you are going to have that with Hal. And, and I, I wonder, do you see the the budding of a sense of humor or does does he have that gene in him? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and and yeah, we bond over over the voice stuff, and he definitely makes me laugh. Uh and yeah, that's good to know, and it's good to remember. Um that and you know, I I'll go out on this. Laughter implies a familiarity, you know, an easiness. Uh, I think of father, good fathering a lot as uh, I'm there, consistency. I'm there every day. Most days I'm there, Joe and Oliver, I feel like, eh, it didn't really matter that much that I was there. But it's that every like sixth day, we're like, oh, not only is it a good thing that I'm here, but it's a good thing I was here the five days previous because now there's a familiarity and a trust where I just can get right in there you know, when it counts. Yeah. And, uh, it, yeah, you know, so that's, and that's also very healing for me too. just feeling even on the days where it doesn't feel like I did anything. I feel like I did just by being there. You know? Well, I have to ask before you go, because you're talking, because you are one of the funnier people that I've ever known. When you were growing up, you were a mimic, you were just, you were probably funny by nature. Was any of that was it trying to get attention? You know, were you trying to make your dad see you more through your comedy, through your performance? And then the second part of it is later on when you found success, you know, did your dad respect that, warm up to that and 
you know, admire you and your career? Yes and yes. It was all, I really took on the role in my family of comic relief mascot. You know, that was the way I kind of made my way. And, mm. uh, um, and mimicking had a lot to do with that. And I found I had like this vocal skill and I, it's part of what really drove my using it. Uh, yeah, more than I even realized, I was trying to get my dad's attention. And he was really responsive to that. He loved, um, as adults, we really, um, we did a lot of repair with each other when I became an adult. Story is kind of happy ending. He was one of those dads too that related to a child a lot better, you know, as when they were grown. Um, and uh, yeah, that drove me in my career, and it drove me more than I thought um, with my parents. Uh, and I, I talk about this with actors a lot. We talk about this a lot. Like, if we didn't have that sort of difficult childhood to overcome, would we have become artists at all? And would we have become good artists, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, most people think, I think I always would have been a gifted mimic, but I just would have had fun with it. I don't think I would have been driven to like make a career out of it unless I was trying to grasp at something I, I didn't think I got as a kid. Are you going to watch Hal's game in the, in the uh, mindset of Jim Brockmire? This is a practice. <laughs> this is, they, they, they got shut down. He made his, um, they, he made his travel team, you know, and then they had a, their whole season shut down. Uh, and now I, they got a, they're hopefully going to have a tournament in three weeks. So they're gearing up for their first tournament. Good. But, wow. but yeah, I, I, I announce it all the time. You kidding me? There's me Hal. and the parents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like two, two pitch to Hal. <laughs> <laughs> Hal looking at the two and two. And he looks at strike three again. And if he does it one more time, I might have to kill him, his coach, and then myself. Man, look at that. Joe, how do we get these kids to not look at strike three? That uh, drives me crazy. Absolutely yeah. insane. Do you guys, do you guys, let me, I got to go, but. Do you guys put yourself on timeouts? I put my, I don't put my kid on a timeout. We don't like believe in that, but I go on a timeout all the time when I lose the patience. Mm. Oh God. Oh, daddy needs timeout. Oh, yeah. Especially daddy. in sports, oh, it's sports. It's the worst. And, and John Madden talks about it. A dad should watch kids from the back row of the bleachers <laughs> and shut up. You know, like you, the kid's not going to MLB. He's not going to be a Met. I hate to break that to you. <laughs> and he's not going to play for the Knicks and he's not going to play for the Giants. So, you know, come on. It's okay. So you're saying the Jets and the Yankees are still possible. That's what yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Definitely the Jets. Uh, I don't know about the Yankees. Oh, Jamal Adams. Yeah. Oh, he acted his way out of town. Um, all right, man. You're the best. I, I, we Thank could you, talk. To, I, I know I speak on the I know. We, need a we could talk to you all. Day. Yeah, we almost need a I'll, part two. I'll do a part two, two anytime if you guys yeah. uh, need a guest again. Yeah, we need a part two because I, I honestly, Hank, I, I love how, how far you go and how deep you go. And I love the work that you've done on yourself. You know, a lot of people, a lot of men honestly haven't. It's something that I take pride in is, is self-care. And it's really nice to hear you talk about how you sort of want to improve every single day as a man and as a father. And, and uh, I respect that. And I would love to get into it even further with you, man. So thank Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Oliver. Thank Thanks, so Hank. Be funny if I took a big drink of vodka right now, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> kind of Just to kind of button. Right. Yes. <laughs> All right, All buddy. Right. Thanks. Take care, Thanks, gentlemen. Hank. Take care. Right. Thanks. Nice Thanks to see you. Thanks, care, guys. Enjoy All right. Bye-bye.